For tonight's uh, time, and again, I will endeavor to be brief, I'm going to talk about three values, three values in missions that I believe are instilled through the church into those that are being sent out. And those values are preparation, patience, and persistence. And I want to draw primarily from older historic missionaries that we would recognize, uh, those that you maybe have read about, and look at their lives and maybe some examples of where we see preparation, patience, and perseverance playing themselves out. Um, Because here's the truth, these values seem to be diminishing in some respects. But I and others that I know in the evangelical world see that if the Great Commission is going to be advanced, if the Great Commission is going to be, dare I say, accomplished, it won't be without these values. To have these values instilled in our children, played out in our own lives, and then given to our ambassadors who are heading overseas is going to be key if we're going to be about the Great Commission in our days. So historic value number one, preparation. When I speak of preparation, I want to be clear that I'm speaking of formal and informal missionary training. I'm speaking of readying an individual for the long process, many times painful, of planting a church among an unreached people group. And I want to acknowledge at the outset that there are concerns with preparation. Preparation, as we discussed yesterday during the seminars, there is a point to where you reach where the ability to learn another language, the ability to assimilate into another culture, that starts to diminish at a certain period. And so preparation for preparation's sake is not what we're going for, but to be someone who is well taught, who is well discipled, who knows how to disciple others, someone who is aware of the pitfalls that are common to missionaries in cross-cultural contexts, to be prepared in that way. Sixty. When this is one of the statistics that's not well known in evangelical circles today. Sixty to seventy percent, somewhere in there, depending on the missions organization that you go with, sixty to seventy percent of North American missionaries don't last longer than two years. If you're planting a church, it's going to take, I'll I'll make that promise, it's going to take longer than two years if you're doing it in a cross-cultural context. And 60 to 70 percent of our ambassadors don't last longer than two years because they're not prepared. They're not ready for what comes at them. They haven't been grounded in the Word sufficiently. They don't know how to defend against the various attacks that will come and the shortcuts that are persistent. Carl Truman said, man, I'll quote him, he said this to myself and some of our board members, the mission field is usually the cutting edge of heresy because you're furthest away from the home church and they're unaware of the new techniques. Beware of the new. Beware of the quick. Beware of the pragmatic. Ground yourself deeply in what you know to be true, what is historic. Historic gets kind of this bad label, this old school label. I love old school. Old school will hold you in good stead when other things fade away under your feet. Be prepared as you head overseas. One of the things, and I said this yesterday in our session that I hear so commonly from the Radius students as they come through the program and right about the third or fourth month mark, I didn't know what I didn't know. When you head into those contexts, 
There are pitfalls and challenges that you just can't even imagine. Be grounded in the Word and know what you're going to do. Have your parameters set up for what you're going after and how to disciple or decipher the various challenges that are coming your way. Second Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as an approved one, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. There's a period of time, there's a winnowing, there's a cultivating for a young man and a young woman, and I'm speaking specifically to those that may end up going, that sometimes takes a period of time that is uncomfortable, and we wonder, what is our God doing? How is He molding and shaping us? And when I have people that are asking me, why should I go to Bible school? Why would I go to seminary? Why would I go to Radius? The need is there. People are dying and going to hell. Brother, you may end up being one of those statistics. And look at your Bible. Look at the ones who came before. Let me just outline a few. Joseph spent two years in prison. Jacob, 14 years working for his father-in-law, looking after sheep. Moses was in the desert 40 years between the time he killed the Egyptian and God spoke to him at the burning bush. King David, 25 years, he's anointed king and then he has to wait to actually become the king. The Apostle Paul, three years in Arabia before beginning his ministry. If it took these men this period of time in the wilderness, being molded, being shaped, going through their years of knowing their God, becoming broken so that they can be, me, be remade as the tool that He could use. Who are you? Ian Murray in that biography I was mentioning of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, you'll always find that the men whom God has signally used have been those who have studied most known their scriptures the best, and given time to preparation. The Spirit generally uses a man's best preparation. It is not the Spirit or preparation. It is preparation plus the anointing that the Holy Spirit alone can supply. Preparation, the Holy Spirit, and God can use you. But don't neglect that period of time that God may take you through prior to potentially being involved in world evangelization. Again, I've mentioned this book so many times, I hope you are able to get it, but the John Payton biography. And I, I will give another endorsement to the Banner of Truth books. There's the Paul Schleyland one. If you don't have the stomach for the 367-pager, go to the one that's about 140 pages. That's still very, very helpful. But walking through that, 19, or excuse me, in 1858, Peyton moves to the island of Tana among the New Hebrides Islands, now called Vanuatu. Three months after moving there to Tana, his son is born. But tragedy struck, and 19 days later, his wife died, and within a month, his son followed. Peyton would remarry and have 10 children during his time of missionary service. Only five of them would live past childhood. Peyton labored on Tana was nearly killed multiple times, chased days in the jungle, out on reefs, up in trees. He saw little fruit during his four years in Tana. And through threat of his life, he ends up relocating to the island of Aniwa. 
Peyton and his wife, his second wife now, would eventually end up on the island of Aniwa, develop an alphabet in the Aniwa language, and after 34 years of battling disease, near death many times, saw the completion of the Aniwa New Testament. Near the end of his life, he saw nearly the entire island of Aniwa make professions of faith established 25 other mission teams in surrounding islands and raised funds for two ships that serviced the islands and wrote an autobiography that still resonates today. This is this man's life, and listen to what he says about the time of preparation. All through my city mission period, I was painfully carrying my studies, first at the University of Glasgow and thereafter at the Reformed Presbyterian Divinity Hall and also medical classes at Anderson College. He's doing all three of these simultaneously. And with the exception of one session when failure of my health broke me down, I struggled patiently on through 10 years. 10 years of preparation. I'm not advocating that, but this is Peyton. The work was hard and most exacting, and if I ever attained the scholarship for which I thirsted, but being poorly grounded in my younger days, I yet had much of the Master's blessed presence in my efforts, which many better scholars sorely lacked. I was sustained by the lofty aim which burned all these years bright within my soul, namely, to be qualified as a preacher of the gospel of Christ to be owned and used by Him for the salvation of perishing men. To be qualified. To be rightly qualified. Don't look down on a season of preparation. If you're going to last, if you're going to make it, look at your season of preparation as the necessary forerunner to, ex to a ministry that the Lord may bless. Preparation. Number two, patience. Oh, if there's any value, I think, in our modern culture that is antithetical to what we see being espoused in the culture, it's patience. Patience for the young person in marriage. Patience in parenting. Patience in missions. Patience in waiting on the only one who can produce true, lasting fruit. The Spirit moves as He chooses. And brother, that may be on your timetable. Time that may not be. Patience as we step into that. Fruit that is true fruit, that is lasting fruit, rarely comes quickly. It takes time. And I would speak to two things, and I've already touched on these, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but two common areas that people heading overseas have a hard time with. Number one is patience in language and culture fluency. Too often I find that people will set aside a year, two years, and now you start real ministry. Two years may be the amount of time for you to get fluent. Two years may not get Fluence before you step into that next chapter of ministry. Because here's what happens. Wherever you start into true ministry, your language level is typically frozen at that level. It doesn't get better. It freezes at wherever you step into ministry. You want to get to that point to where you can communicate clearly. You're an insider. The doors that open to you with government officials, with others within the community, when you can speak, 
The Yembis, when we were in Yembi Yembi, we would have other villages that hadn't seen the two years that we went through, where we sounded like Tarzan. Me, Tarzan, you, Jane. I like banana. I hungry, need water. That was the extent of my language. Horrific. The Yembis got tired of laughing at me. I was just this guy who was stumbling and bumbling along. Not a gospel proclaimer, just a three-year-old kid dressed up in a 27-year-old man's body. And getting them as they helped me to the point to where I could communicate clearly. I could tell these jokes and some of them would laugh occasionally. And then they got better and I could understand this language. And then finally, when we started the teaching and ones from other villages coming in, bring him out. We want to hear this guy. We've heard there's this white guy and his wife that speak our language fluently. And this shock when they would come across because they didn't see the time of preparation. You're this anomaly. Something about the message that you are bringing is so important that you took the time to become fluent in our language. It speaks to the value of the message. If this is so valuable, I want you to hear this clearly. I'm going to take that time. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait until this can be heard clearly. Because here's the thing, guys. Remember this. There isn't such a thing as getting the gospel mostly right. Galatians chapter 2 is pretty clear on this. You either get the gospel right or you get the gospel wrong. But there's not a, there's not a sliding scale of, you got it mostly right. Mostly right, according to the Bible, is called wrong. You either get it right or you get it wrong. And to hear other people commenting, oh my goodness, he speaks like us. He has a Yembi Yembi accent. Where did he come up with this? Have him eat our food. And it's like you're this wild animal at the zoo and have him do these things and you're talking to him back and forth. It's amazing the doors that open. Take the time to become fluent. And then patience in planting a strong church. You guys have heard already the time it took. And these aren't the great, wonderful prayer letters that were the ones when we were teaching the gospel all the way up to the death, burial, and resurrection. Those are the exciting ones. But those of you know that raising children is similar. It's exciting to have kids. They're kind of fun. They're interesting, and they don't do a lot of bad things, and their sin nature doesn't necessarily come out when they're really young. And then the heavy lifting kicks in. Churches are like baby humans. You care for them. You protect them. You feed them. And if you don't do those things, they die. Take the time to plant a church. Don't leave it as an infant. It won't make it. Take the time to plant strong New Testament churches that will stand the test of time. We know this from our brief study today from Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, they didn't, the disciples didn't content themselves with making disciples alone. They gathered them, they taught them, they trained them, they named elders, they poured themselves into strong churches. But here's the downside of planting strong churches. It takes longer. It will take longer. The prayer letters are going to be a little more blasé, except for those who value true, strong New Testament churches. There's not going to be the exciting breakthroughs. But in the end of the day, you will have something by God's grace that will outlive you. Take the time to become fluent. Take the time. Be patient in planting a church. It's like raising a child. There will be stages to it. Stick with it for the long haul. And then finally, the third value, perseverance. 
Perseverance is this strange commodity that many aspire to, but only find out they possess it when it's truly required. And in another strange paradox of the Christian world, or the Christian life, it seems to be a hardwired rule that the more trials God grants you, the more your perseverance seems to grow and flourish. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope doesn't let us down. When we go through the deep waters, whether that's in Lansing, Michigan, or Yembiembi, Papua New Guinea, the hope of what is to come produced through the trials, that brought the perseverance, that brought the character. Probably the most compelling book that I read, and I, again, I gave it out yesterday, uh, was this book called The Three Mrs. Judsons, The Three Wives of Adoniram Judson. And it chronicles mostly through their letters, the writings of the three women who married Adoniram Judson. And uh, I, again, I'll stand by this comment. Man, I think this book should be required reading for teenage girls. It's too rich and too good to sit on shelves. It's literally the title of it or the publisher of it is called Forgotten Books. These are treasures that are buried somewhere out there in the Christian world. Most people know of Anne Hasseltine. She was the one who was with Adoniram, who kept him alive through his imprisonment. She was shrewd in the way she dealt with the emperor, the guards. Uh, through unbelievable circumstances, she kept her baby alive. She kept Adoniram alive. She kept the scriptures that they had translated and poured three years of their life. She somehow kept those from being destroyed. And then when Adoniram's released from prison six months later, their baby girl dies, and a few weeks after that, she dies. Almost as if God had raised her up for this purpose. And this sends Adoniram into a depression that was like nothing he'd ever seen. The stories of him going off, building a house in the jungle, building, digging his own grave, sitting beside his grave as he wept for his wife. And then God calls him back, and he brings along this fascinating woman called Sarah Boardman. Sarah was raised in a family in New Hampshire, but by God's grace was saved at a young age. She taught herself how to read, was responsible for the education of her siblings all the way through middle school. Early in her life, her heart was convinced of the worthiness of missions. And when she met George Boardman, she was quickly married and they headed off to Burma. She and George set sail for Burma just one week after being married. Shortly after arriving in Burma, she gave birth to a baby girl. Her and her husband learned Burmese and eventually the Karin, a minority people group, uh, minority language in Burma, they learned that, that language as well. They traveled deep into the mountains, saw the Karin believers gathered into a church, and Sarah had a gift for languages. She would end up learning four languages during her 20 years in Burma. 
When her daughter was two years old, she suddenly contracted the fever, what was most likely yellow fever, and would end up dying. In all, Sarah would have 11 children. Only six of them would live past two years old. She was an extraordinary lady. Not because of the bigger trials that she made it through, but because of the smaller ones, the daily struggles. Over 20 years of her time in Burma, she was sick for over half of them. If you're going to be involved in missions, get used to, prepare your body for operating through difficult things. We train our students what it's like to continue learning language while you have a fever, to continue moving forward when you're running on two to three hours of sleep. It's not when you're at your best that you shine the brightest. It's when you don't get the amount of sleep you need. You haven't eaten food for a little while. There's certain challenges coming from different quarters. That's when you shine. That's when you shine, and Sarah Borden was an example of that. Pastors and aspiring missionaries, it's not usually death, imprisonment, and kidnapping that knock people out of the race. It's false expectations. It's when the glow of missions wears off and the day-to-day grind, the smog, the humidity, the poor diet, the years and years of struggling at a language. That's why most missionaries come home. It's not the huge highlight events. It's the regular things to stay through those things. I regularly stand up uh, and I'll speak to college groups or churches and someone will come up to me afterwards. Nobody will come up tonight, but someone will come up to me afterwards and say something to the effect of, I could never do that. I could never do what you're describing. What you just described with the Yembies, what you guys did over there, I could just never do that. I'm so blessed that you guys did that. I could never do that. I just, I couldn't get into missions. And I used to answer this way, brother, sister, we're just normal people. You can do this as well. This is well within it because it's the God that emanates through us that actually allowed these things to happen. But I don't answer that question that way anymore. You know how I answer it? You're right. You couldn't do that right now. But God in His grace will give you just enough to walk through that door today to maybe walk away from that job, to maybe talk to your church leaders about potentially heading to the field. That's a huge thing to think about right now. And then He will give you the grace to get on that plane for the first time. And then He'll give you the grace when you get to the country to make it through that first language. Then He'll give you the grace to handle malaria. Then he'll give you the grace when your child has malaria. Then he'll give you the grace to learn that second language. And he continues every step of the way to give you just the right amount of grace to walk faithfully through the doors that are open. It doesn't happen overnight. If you knew all the things that were waiting in store, you'd never go. If I knew all the things that we were going to go through in Yembe, way, way, way back in 2003 when we went, I wouldn't have gone. There's no way. But God gives you the grace for every step. Just what you need today. Keep walking, brother. Keep walking, sister. Keep persevering. Your God will be there. He'll be there for you. He'll give you everything you need for today. And you trust Him for tomorrow, and He'll be there tomorrow. And you walk in that grace. And you turn around and you look at the track record of your God in 20 years. Nothing but grace. I could have never, no one. Thank you, God. 
Thank you that you didn't allow me to see the story ahead of time. Thank you that you gave me what I needed for today. Sarah's husband, after three years, would go to be with the Lord, and two years after that, she would marry Adoniram Judson. Sarah would have 15 years with, beside Adoniram, probably the sweetest years of Adoniram's life. She had the privilege of translating John Bunyan's Pil Pilgrim's Progress into Burmese, still used today. I've seen a copy of it. Translated several tracts into Burmese and then into the Peguan, Karen languages, and eventually the entire New Testament into the Peguan language. This is Sarah Boardman, mother of five children. I'm going to close today with an excerpt from the three Mrs. Judsons on Sarah's final journey as she crosses that great river to the celestial city. Sarah became so ill, they decided to travel to America in hopes that the sea air would work its healing and she would have opportunity to see George, her son, who she sent to boarding school and she hadn't seen in seven years, who is now a teenager. They set sail April 26, 1845, and with their three oldest children and the intention of leaving them for their education in the United States, when they returned, they set off on their journey. They left the three youngest ones behind, one of whom died before Judson returned. Judson had not been to America now for 33 years and was only returning for the sake of his wife. As they rounded the tip of Africa in September 1845, Adniram recorded her final hours in tender detail. Her mind became liable to wander, but a single word was sufficient to recall and study her recollection. On the evening of the 31st of August, she appeared to be drawing near to the end of her pilgrimage. The children took leave of her and retired to rest. I sat alone by the side of her bed during the hours of the night, endeavoring to administer relief to the distressed body and consolation to the departing soul. At two o'clock in the morning, wishing to obtain one more token of recognition, I roused her attention and I said, do you still love the Savior? Oh yes, she replied, I ever love the Lord Jesus Christ. I said again, do you still love me? She replied in the affirmative by a peculiar expression of our own, then gave me one more kiss, and we exchanged the token of love for the last time. Another hour passed and continued to recede, and she ceased to breathe. And for a moment I traced her upward flight and thought of the wonders which were opening to her view. On the following morning, with no vestige of island was discernible in the distant horizon, and for a few days in the solitude of my cabin with my poor children crying around me, I could not help but abandon myself to heartbreaking sorrow. But the promises of the gospel came to my aid, and faith stretched her view to the bright eternal life and anticipated a happy meeting with those beloved ones who were moldering in Amherst, that's his first wife, and St. Helena. If the gospel is to be accomplished, if the language groups that populate the earth are to have strong New Testament churches planted among them, it will not be done via summer missions trips, Jesus films, and other short-term efforts. Those have their place in the Christian world, but they're unable to bring the clarity of the gospel and the power of the church to places that still exist in darkness only on the backs of God's people who are willing to walk away from promising careers, families, 
safety, and patiently through 15, 20, 30 years come to see churches established, will we see the Great Commission accomplished? I pray for the body of URC. I pray for the saints here that God would deign to grace you with the ones who will give their lives to see the gospel and to see the church built in those types of locations. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, we praise you for the grace that you give us on a daily basis. So many things that we do not recognize. We are creature, you are creator. You are the one who holds all things together by the power of your word. You are the one who gives us life and breath and meaning. And Father, we live to glorify you. We pray for our ones here in the church. We pray that you would be working in their lives. We pray for the leaders of this body. We pray that they would prepare well. Prepare their members for what it means to live and to walk in this world in 2021. Prepare their members for what it would be like to take the gospel to other locations. We pray that the members of this body would grow in patience. Patience for what it means to be a gospel witness in this culture. Patience for what it would mean to be overseas and to see something sustainable built by your great grace. And Father, we pray for perseverance. That we would persevere in grace. That we'd persevere in our knowledge of you. We would persevere through hardship, through struggles. We would persevere to the end of our own pilgrimage. And someday on that great day, when you gather us home as a body, you gather your loved ones, your sons and daughters, never to go through the challenges of this life again, but to be with you for all time. We'll praise you, Lord. We will praise you now and we'll praise you then. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.